We have finally made it to Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Father, we praise you today because you have done great things to save your people and to bring yourself glory in the world. Help us now to hear your word with open hearts and to respond in faithfulness and gladness. Amen. Well, starting with chapter 1, verse 18, Paul proves why people need the gospel, why we need to be saved. It is because the gospel has the power to save us from God's wrath. His righteous judgment against humanity's unrighteousness because the human race has suppressed the truth that it knows about God. God has revealed himself in the world that he has created. His power, his existence, his glory. But mankind has suppressed it. Instead of seeking God, mankind has given its devotion to created things rather than God the creator. This rebellion has brought retribution from God as he has handed humanity over to sin and judgment. And so starting in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul now addresses the person he knows will respond by saying, wow, those guys are a mess. Hey, honey, come and look at this. They're a wreck. People like that get what they deserve, don't they? At one level, Paul is warning the moral person, the person who finds confidence and security in their own goodness, someone who thinks they are exempted from God's wrath, a person who doesn't see himself or herself in this category of evil and rebellion. Frankly, that's most people. Most people don't think of themselves as idolaters who have rejected God and are trapped in their rebellion and therefore come under God's wrath. 
This is one kind of worldview that Romans 2 is confronting. But it becomes clear as Paul continues, it is Jewish thinking that he's after, that he's speaking to. Even if he starts broadly. Because if anyone thought they were in a different category than the rest of mankind, it was Israel. It was the Jewish people. If anyone thought they would be secure from judgment, it was those who had received the promises of God, who had been set apart by the Mosaic law and covenant. This passage then gives us three warnings against false security. And I would ask you, where is your security today? Where is your security? Three warnings against false security. The first one is found in verses 1 and 2. You practice what God judges. That's the first warning. You do the very things that God judges. Now to say what he wants to say, Paul engages in a diatribe. Now that's just a fancy word for a debate with an imaginary person who represents what his audience is thinking. I occasionally do this even when I preach. I'll say something like, now, Sean, you told us this and this, and then I will respond to it as if you had said that. Now, that's, that's a pretty unofficial or, or a casual way of doing a diatribe. This is a more formal way. But it is this anticipating what someone's response is going to be to what you have stated and then arguing against it and showing why that would be a misunderstanding of what you've said. And the real reason that I mention this at this point is because Paul does this several times in the book of Romans. Several times Paul will start a conversation with an imaginary person for the purpose of addressing what he knows is the wrong thinking or the wrong response to what he is writing. Now, this imaginary person, in verse 1, he calls, O man, O person. And it's not an individual. It is any particular person representing that. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, that is, who sits in condemnation of unrighteous people whom God has given over to this judgment of of increased sin and therefore increased consequences. Some will respond to Paul's dismal portrait of the human Uh, race by recognizing the unrighteousness of mankind, but exempting themselves from its number. By keeping themselves from its fate, where it is headed. Paul says the problem is you have no excuse. You have no exemption. Because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself Because you practice the very same things. Now, the very same things might be everything that he's talked about in chapter 1, but the closest reference is actually verses 29, 30, and 31, where he lists this kind of 
comprehensive view of man's evil and rebellion, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, etc. Those who practice such things deserve to die. Verse 31. And we know this. And the reasoning then is this. This isn't just a confrontation of hypocrisy. It's not just a confrontation of, hey, you condemn somebody else, but you're really doing the same thing. It's more than that. Paul's reasoning is this. If the criterion you use to condemn another is their practice of such things, then your criterion for exemption can't be something other than what you practice. Does that make sense? And you do the very same things. So you don't get to use one criterion at one point and say, yes, condemnation is deserved by the human race because of the practicing such things, and then pick a different standard for yourself and say, but I'm exempt because of this or that. Knowing such behaviors are wrong and immoral and that God judges them has not prevented you from doing them, Paul is saying. And we know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things by saying, we know, Paul is saying, you agree with me on this. You know this to be true. We both see this. The judgment of God rightly falls. God is just in judging those who practice such things. It's almost as though this person to whom Paul is speaking thinks because they, in chapter 1, and you will notice the shift Chapter 1, beginning verse 18, it's they and them and they and them, talking about the whole human race. And now Paul is speaking to somebody specific, you. He says, and it's almost as if this person is thinking, because they, in chapter 1, are futile in their thinking, that because they are darkened in their hearts, their course of sin, their course of rebellion will bring judgment But I know the judge, and I will be judged differently because I have diplomatic immunity. I I have a hall pass. I have the proverbial get-out-of-jail-free card. But, Paul is saying, it is the practice, the doing of these things that brings judgment... Regardless of nationality, regardless of creed, or even possessing divine revelation, because you have been given insight into the fate of the human race, into the desperate plight of the entire human race, does not mean you are exempt from their fate, their judgment. So the worldview Paul is confronting is not a person who claims, I don't do any of those things. You notice that? That's not his argument. 
It's not that somebody's saying, well, they deserve it. I don't live that way. It's someone who says, I may do many of those same things, but I have a privileged position that ensures an exemption from judgment. I don't fall into that category. I'm in a different category. But for anyone to think they have some privileged immunity from God's judgment is a false security. It's a false security. Do you entertain false security? Is there in your thinking that there is a different standard rendered to you and to me because we are American, because our nation has Christian roots, not that every founder of our country was a Christian, but that it was founded on a Judeo-Christian morality? Do you place security in the fact that you know the Bible? Because most of you, I'm going to guess, know the Bible very well. Many of you, though not all of you, have grown up in Sunday school. You have heard all of the stories. You hear teaching consistently week in and week out. You participate in community groups. Some of you grew up in the church. You have a family heritage of Christian faith. Is there security placed in those things? It's a subtle presumption on our part. Do you place your security in reformed theology? I knew someone once whom I confronted about some attitudes and some behaviors who responded by saying, yeah, I know, but I'm elect. And he wasn't saying it's okay for me to do these things because I'm elect. But he was saying, yeah, I know, and I'm not particularly worried about it. I'll overcome it. Everything will be cool because I'm elect. The argument or the basis that I'm elect is never a claim of security. And if you doubt that, read John chapter 8, where Jesus confronts the religious leaders with their uh, desire to kill him and says, you do not do the works of my father. And they say, wait a second, we're the children of Abraham. What were they claiming? We're God's elect. We can't be wrong. You find the same issue at the, uh, the end of the history of Israel before Babylon comes in and invades Judah and uh, completely destroys the temple. The Israelites' attitude was one of, we're the promised people, we've received the covenant, and we live in the promised land. God isn't going to re, uh, take us out of the promised land. He's not going to remove us because he's promised us this land. Now, that may sound like good theology, 
But the problem is it's presumptuous on God. Read the book of Jeremiah. This is the the bulk of Jeremiah's warning to the king. You think that because God has promised you this land, you can stay here and you're okay? Where is your security? Even your theological framework, if it's sound, that in and itself is not security. Because you understand that man is totally depraved doesn't mean you're secure. So the first warning is, you practice what God judges. You do the same things. And if that is the criterion, you face the same consequences. You face the same standard. His second warning then is found in verses 3 through 5. You presume on God's kindness. You presume on God's kindness. Paul poses two questions in verses 3 and 4. And the first one is, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think? That's what he means by do you suppose. Do you really work it out this way? This is a question that actually reveals a conclusion they have reached and in error. We will escape God's judgment. We will escape it. Because God has shown to us the riches of his kindness. This is implied in verse 4. Because God has shown us such blessing, because God has shown us such kindness, because he has singled us out for attention and protection and affection, we will escape his judgment. It's the kind of reasoning that says, because God hasn't judged us so far, he won't ever. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Again, this is a rhetorical question. It's actually a a rebuke. You are presuming on the riches of his kindness. In other words, you presume that you are secure, that you are exempt because God has been patient and kind to you. The purpose of any blessing, the purpose of any kindness granted to any of us is intended to lead us to being broken and sorry for our sin. That is its purpose. It is God's kindness and his patience. The fact that he has not destroyed all of us only shows that he is drawing us, that he is patient, he is giving time. It is not condoning. 
The purpose of blessing and kindness is to, to bring us to repentance. Repentance, of course, is not just turning from sin, but it is turning from sin to God. To turn from these practices and to seek reconciliation with God. That is the purpose of his kindness. It is not to give us security or exemption from judgment. That is certainly a false security. So for us to say, I can't be headed for judgment, I'm obviously blessed. God is obviously gracious. God obviously loves me. The Bible says he loves me. But if in seeing God's love, that does not lead us to be ashamed of our sin and our rebellion against him, you are presuming. We're presuming on him. And if we claim such exemption from judgment, we're presuming on his kindness and his patience, and we actually fail to take the path that God intends for us to take in response to him, which is, to repent, to repent of the very rebellion that bring God's righteous judgment. And that rebellion begins with, I don't need it. I don't need the salvation. I don't need the kindness. I don't, I don't know that I need God's patience with me. That in and of itself is rebellion. God's kindness provides you the opportunity to repent, but, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's almost as if Paul is saying the more patient God is, the longer he gives every individual, and the entire human race as a whole, the longer he waits, the longer he gives, the more opportunity there is to repent and turn to him, and the more opportunity there is to harden the heart and to resist and to refuse to acknowledge that we need kindness, that we need forgiveness. And the longer that we can go in resisting and hardening the heart, the more wrath is accumulating. It's accumulating for us from when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. By relying on a false security and refusing to repent, a person is actually hardening his heart or her heart and increasing the judgment they will experience. Now, all of us are guilty of taking advantage of God's kindness sometimes. There are times for each of us where we know it is wrong. We know it is sin. And we know, though, that God will forgive. And we take advantage of that. But to do that and then repent and to turn is different than living a life that is always and taking advantage of God's kindness, that takes it for granted and presumes upon it. 
So you presume on God's kindness. That's Paul's second warning here against false security. Don't think that because God loves you, because God is kind, because God is patient with us, that that means that there's some exemption that in reality, though God, it's not as, in other words, God is not all bark and no bite. That God is just warning, but God is so kind, and God is really what he's going to do is sweep everything under the carpet someday. You presume on his kindness. Paul's third warning then begins in verse 6. And this is really the meat of the warnings. You face God's impartial judgment. You face God's impartial judgment. Verses 6 through 11 explain why such security is false. Why to think that there's some privileged position that exempts somebody from God's judgment, from the standard of practicing such things, that condemnation, and the false security that comes from, but God has shown kindness. God is patient with us. And that's Conclusion is in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So here is then the theological error behind the false security that Paul is warning against. It is a false view of God, that God is partial, that God shows favoritism, that in God's system For the human race, God sets up double standards in his holiness and justice. However, he will render to each one according to his works, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And the works go back to the practice, the practices of such things. As judge, God renders. He rewards or punishes every individual according to his or her works, the things he or she practices. Then the works are contrasted here. Verses 7 and 8. To those who by patience in well-doing, so this is endurance, Persistence, those who persist in well-doing. Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and Fury. So it is a matter then of persistence and well-doing and what we seek and what is obeyed, the truth or unrighteousness. And you will notice that Paul doesn't leave a third category of independence, that everyone obeys one or the other. This he will make clearer in chapter 6 when he talks about being a slave 
a slave of Christ or slave of sin. But you are obeying one or the other. You are either obeying the truth or you are obeying unrighteousness. And there are only two destinies, eternal life or wrath and fury. By implication, the wrath and fury are also eternal. There's eternal life, wrath and fury. There's no third option. Limbo is not an option. Purgatory is not an option. Non-existence is not an option. There is a view called annihilationism, which is the belief that when somebody dies, they're just they're gone. They just cease to exist. Really, everybody knows in their heart of hearts that is not true. Even all of our art, our films, our literature, they all reflect the idea of eternity. And Eastern religions and mysticism, that eternity might be reincarnation. You're always re-entering. History is cyclical. You're always re-entering creation and going back and forth in and out of it, coming back as another person or an animal or whatever it is. But it's still, why? Because of what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, he has set eternity in their hearts. We know we're eternal creatures, eternal beings. So there's no third option. There is eternal life and there is wrath and fury. And verses 9 and 10 then form a parallel, right? Tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil is wrath and fury for the self-seeking. And the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good is parallels the eternal life for well-doing. But in verses 9 and 10... We circle back to something Paul first mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 16, when he said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. You see that, it's repeated here. And Paul is in some ways being ironic because just as the promises of God to save are fulfilled most importantly to the Jews because they had received the promises and the rest of the world is receiving the promises through them. So reward and punishment for works are also first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So first in salvation is also first in judgment. And this is the first hint that when Paul addresses the O oh man, back in chapter 2, verse 1, the one who judges others and thinks of himself as exempt from the rest of humanity, he actually has Jewish persons in mind, their worldview, their thinking. And now he's, now he's kind of narrowing and he's becoming more specific. So whereas broadly anybody who thinks they're exempt, no. But even someone who has this special privileged place, Despite whatever security someone might claim because of a privileged relationship with God, 
God shows no partiality. And he judges every person according to his works. Not according to that person's nationality. Not that person's heritage. Not that person's status. Not that person's experience of biblical teaching. Now all of this presents us with a bit of a difficulty, doesn't it? And those of you who have been in the Christian faith long enough, and especially we as those who proclaim a reformed theology and understanding of grace and faith and salvation through grace and faith alone, how are we supposed to understand this? The declaration of verse 6, he will render to each one according to the, his works, is very straightforward. So how do we understand this in light of salvation by grace through faith alone? How do we even reconcile this with what Paul just a chapter away will say in Romans 3 verse 28? We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now hold on a second. If God renders to each one according to his works, how then can he say that one is justified apart from the works of the law? Does God render to each one according to works or faith? Can you and I attain eternal life by works or faith? Well, verse 6 and then verse 7 would certainly seem to say that God renders according to my works, and if I am to obtain eternal life, then I better be seeking glory and honor and immortality. That I better be well-doing. Can you and I attain eternal life by works or faith? That's what's at stake. Eternal life or wrath and fury? Well, there are three parts needed to answer that question, to resolve this dilemma. So first of all, though it is according to works that God renders reward and punishment, this does not mean that we can actually accomplish them. Do you see Paul say that anywhere here? He does not say that because God renders to each one according to his works, that somehow that's actually possible for anybody. He doesn't say that. Paul lays out God's requirement for obtaining eternal life. Glory, honor, immortality, But his point, listen, his point is that the standard is the same for everybody. That there aren't two categories of the human race that are judged by God according to two different standards. The standard is the same for everyone. One part of humanity isn't judged according to their works, and another part of humanity judged according to a privileged status. 
Just because God renders to each one according to his works doesn't mean anyone can achieve the works that are required. And what does that mean for everybody? Wrath and fury. That's his point. That's where he's going to go. So this idea of obtaining eternal life according to my works is, a, is completely hopeless. And this argument becomes even clearer in chapter 3, where he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. So first of all, even though it's according to works that God renders, reward and punishment, Paul isn't saying anyone can ever actually get the reward part of that. He's just talking about the divine standard for everybody, and it's the same. Secondly, just because neither you nor I can accomplish these works doesn't mean we aren't judged according to works. Just because you and I can't ever attain those works and therefore gain eternal life doesn't mean God has changed the standard by which he judges the human race. You are judged according to your works, and so am I. And we're hopeless. Unless someone else's works are attributed to us. Unless someone else's works are accounted to me. Unless someone else's righteousness is counted toward you before God as though they were your works and my works. That's the only way. The declaration of verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, is not the least altered to accomplish our salvation from wrath or to gain eternal life. How this happens is the very heart of the gospel's power to save us. Because we need someone else's righteousness. It isn't that unrighteousness is accepted because Jesus died on the cross. It is that Jesus' dying on the cross provides a righteousness I could never have and that you could never have. But the standard for the human race is still the same. God renders to each one according to his works. And the only conclusion for you or for me is to go, if that's, in, if that's true, I'm in trouble. Regardless of whatever kind of status I think I have, whatever category I think I belong to of the human race, or how moral I think I am, I'm in trouble. Good. If you think that good, that's exactly what you should be thinking. Now, I said there are three parts to answer this dilemma. So the, the first one is, just because Paul says this is how God 
operates. He, re, he renders reward and punishment according to works. Doesn't mean we can accomplish those works. And secondly, the system isn't altered because we can't accomplish those works. We need somebody else's works to be put into our account. Thirdly, just because our works could never be sufficient to save us and we need somebody else's righteousness, works are still a crucial part of God's work in saving us. They're still a crucial part. Now, Paul elaborates on this truth in chapters to come, especially in chapter 6. He talks about being raised uh, with Christ. It's our union with Christ. It's how all this is going to happen. Paul's going to explain this is how it happens. But I want to turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 2 for a summary of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, there I go. There we go. Now we reformed... We reformed Calvinists, okay? We, now we're on solid ground. We know this verse. We preach grace. We know we're saved by grace. It said we can't accomplish it. We can never earn it. We can't merit it in any way. It's a gift. And it's a gift to be received by faith, not a result of works. And that is to eliminate all human pride or any claim to, I did this. I accomplished this. However, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hmm. Now Paul, listen, Paul is not saying in verse 10 that he has saved us by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest we should boast, hoping that then once we are saved, we will start living the right way. Now, I've, got, I've given them the position. I've saved them. They are uh, they're now changed. They have believed in me. I've given them this gift. They've received it by faith. And now I hope they will start to live righteously. Now I hope they'll start doing some good works. And they can only do good works that are produced by this salvation. Now that is true. But when it says God prepared these good works beforehand that we should walk in them, what he's saying is that when he has saved us by grace through faith, that puts us on a path that the sovereign God who saved us has already designed. And if you are not, or I am not, walking in them, then the salvation that we're claiming we have is questionable. Because that's part of it. I was raised in a Christian home. My father and mother were believers. And my mom had one, uh, she had a several, uh, 
how do I put them? Uh, not cliches, but teaching points for me over the years. Okay. One of them was, and she would say this fairly often, especially when I was in junior high. But she would say, no change, no Jesus. No change, no Jesus. But these good works are not the optional now. That's just one option you get now that you're saved. The good works are a necessary part of the entire process. God has designed them and prepared them. That means he has ordained them just as he has, by his grace, saved you. And so how we now live as God's people is radically different, and it, it reflects and mirrors and is produced by the salvation that we have by God's grace through faith. Paul will also speak back to the attitude that says, well, if I have grace, then I can just live however I want. He's going to say that in Romans. Shall, because of grace, shall we increase in sin? By no means. That's another one of his diatribes. It's another one of these conversations. By no means. Works are a part of it. There has to be change. There has to be different life and living. So just because God renders to each one according to his works doesn't mean we can accomplish those works. Doesn't mean that's possible. And just because we can't accomplish them doesn't mean we aren't judged according to works. It means we need someone else's works. We need someone else's righteousness. And in the end, though our works could never be sufficient to save us, they could never merit God's grace. They could never earn or buy salvation. They are a crucial part of what God is doing in saving us. Because that salvation is not just a position that's changed, but a life and a living that's changed. A transformation. So where is your security? Where have you placed your hope? If there are only two destinies, if there is only eternal life, or wrath and fury, on what ground do you stand before God? And if you say, if you say, well, it's not about works. It's not about works. It's just about God's grace. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you are saved. Because God renders according to works. You need somebody else's righteousness. You need somebody else's works. And we know that that is what Jesus did when he died. He provided not only a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, but the righteousness that each of us needs to stand before God. Let's pray. Lord, lest we should presume upon your kindness and your patience, I ask this morning that you would, that you would help people to see
where they really stand with you. That no one would be self-deceived into reckoning themselves as right with you because they think they're right with you or because they belong to some category of experience or heritage or whatever it might be. Lord, in your mercy, deliver us from any false securities and let us find that small space where alone we stand by faith and grace, confident only in your provision of righteousness. Break us, break our hearts of the sin and rebellion in which we have lived and defied you. We know that the gospel is the only hope for every person and therefore every people and every culture. And we long to see lives changed. And we long for that day as your people, those of us who belong to you and are saved, we long for that day because we know we have confidence, security only in the blood of Christ and the righteousness that he has achieved and given to us. In your name, we praise you and we thank you and we lift our voices in song and prayers. Amen.